What does it mean to be a rebel with a cause? And what does it look like when we do entrepreneurship in community and with accountability for the choices we make? I'm Erica McElack, founder of Hikma. You are listening to the Hikma Collective podcast, where in this episode, we are talking with Brittany Brathwaite, who is an amazing creative serial social entrepreneur and also a scholar. She's a great answerer of both of these questions and more. I learned so much in this conversation and we really hope that you enjoy it. Thank you for listening. Welcome, Brittany. Thanks for joining us. Tell us about yourself. I'm Brittany. Um, I'm a reproductive justice activist, uh, mm-hmm. entrepreneur, and community accountable scholar. Uh, originally from Brooklyn, New York, but now I'm in Harlem. Um, I love Brooklyn, though. Can't wait to go back. <laughs> um, and I'm a current PhD student at the Graduate Center studying critical social personality psychology. Um probably I think this is my third year I don't know I've been on zoom in zoom university for like two and a half years now so it's Mm kind of hard to keep track of that um but I am the co-founder of three really beautiful um ventures in the world uh one is a feminist apparel um and I think we're more than apparel apparel brand um called homegirl hq it was formerly called the homegirl box uh and we uh, curate uh, items that are created by women-owned and non-binary-owned businesses. Uh, that's what we've done in the past, but all of our work really centers the life and legacy of revolutionary women of color. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that was like one of the, that's my most physical product of a business. Like that's the one that I see at other people's houses and I'm like, oh, I made that. Um, and, I, and I've been building that since 2016. And so that's been really fun. And it's, and most people think that we're like a an activist nonprofit though, since we're so like our values are so front forward. So people are yeah. like, and it's, I'm like, no, we really just make shirts and boxes, but <laughs> I love that you think that. Um, and that's because of who we are. Like, I think that's the place where my values like really shine through. And even in the manufacture, I didn't know anything about like, how things are manufactured and how to make choices around like where to, you know, buy products from. I only, you know, source in the US and I'm really like, uh, like, you know, how much it costs to mail something and try to support the United States Postal Service, but they lose your stuff all the time. And so there's like all of these, like where your values come into actions or like sending something in the mail, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that was like, that was my, one of my first ventures. Um, and then, um, and it's also a worker owned cooperative. And so while there are only two, homegirl workers now we're we're incorporated as a worker-owned cooperative Um, and what does that mean what does a worker-owned cooperative look like so a cooperative um a cooperative model is a a part of a larger um uh sort of like ideology of cooperative economics in the sense that they're just sharing around profit around decision making Uh, Mm -hmm. and so anyone who comes to work at homegirl hq owns uh, homegirl HQ and so they, they mm-hmm. have the ability to have actual you know it's not like buying stock but you have equity in the company that you work for uh, mm-hmm. and that people have decision-making power and so 
it's not like, you know, I mean, you have this, most of the time you have decision making power in some form of your job, but you don't kind of get to, you don't get to make decisions about the organizational budget, right? Mm -hmm. Or like how, who you work with um, and in a worker owned cooperative model you do. And so um, it's, it's never easy because when you have multiple people making decisions, it takes a lot of time and it like, you know, it's not like, oh yes, we're going to do this thing or I'm going to jump on the call with this person, or we're going to invest this in this, you know, I want to make stocks. And my business mm-hmm. partner is like, we're going to make stocks in three years, Brittany. And I'm like, ah, but I only have 50%, 50% of the vote here. So that makes sense until we actually come into agreement around like what our next thing is going to be. And so, uh, and then my other organization, Rebellious Root, is also a worker-owned cooperative. And so mm-hmm. there's, they're, they're start, they start off with, we, were five, we originally had five members. Now we have three active members. Um, and we are a facilitation co-op. And so we mm-hmm. facilitate for organizations. We do strategic planning, um, company retreats. We do a lot of diversity, um, equity, inclusion, justice work. I call it Jedi work. Uh, yeah. And we have a lot of fun doing that. And then we also put on a, a, a retreat for youth workers. Um, the U.S. doesn't really have a youth worker force. So like you'll never hear like a basketball coach and a teacher and a sex educator and I don't know, someone who teaches kids gardening feel like they all belong to the same group. But in other countries, mm-hmm. that is a thing. Like people mm-hmm. identify as youth workers. And as long as they work and develop young people, they see themselves as part of the same sort of cohort. And so we're mm-hmm. working to put folks together here in the U.S. and have that be a, a mindset about how we think about youth development, at, not as these like separate things, but as like one <laughs> You're one group of people who are charged with developing young people and what might it look like to have the same kind of like manifesto and working and engaging young people. That's interesting. So when you think about youth workers and trying to create sort of a critical mass or a magnet or an organizational framework, is it kind of like reframing the most foregrounding a certain dimension of what they do to reimagine a community of practice is that what it is yeah so it's it's a community of practice so folks can feel like they are in like a, a learning community and a community of practice together so like a basketball coach and an after school teacher find themselves in the same place obviously uh-huh. at different times but they are both people who see young people out of school time right and so they're responsible for things like sometimes meals and like feeding yeah. young people and there could be more sharing um of their strategies and how they support young people but these are such these are so um divided and we noticed like while they're training for for lots of people like managers have a training you can go to the management center or you could go to some if you're a social worker you can get continuing education units but there is no training for youth workers specifically like here's uh-huh. how to be a youth worker like it's like here's how to be a basketball coach but not here's how to work with young people in this way unless you're formally educated in a uh, and you go the education or teacher route and so we wanted to provide a space for folks to really get that um and get that together in community and so that's our youth worker force um retreat model and we're, and we're working on building out sort of a program so that we could have that and we we pulled from places like Canada, um, the UK. Lots of folks already have those materials. It's not new, and we're not inventing it. But we're also doing it in the US and the context mm-hmm. of the US and our specific like policies that are so different um, for young people here than they are in other places. And so um, mm-hmm. that's that's like our main work at Rebellious Root. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I have Kimberdiv, which is um, 
a, a company that works for sex uh, works on sexual wellness uh, for Black women specifically, and we are currently working on a digital learning platform for Black women um, as a virtual companion to talk about everything from birth control to uh, like self-managed reproductive health care, the whole spectrum. Um, mm-hmm. And that was my first ever business. I started that like 2015. I was like the first, I was in grad school, very poor, um, <laughs> working on that. And so, yeah, I did lots of things going on. And then, and then I consult in other ways all the time for other people. <laughs> Can I ask how you define rebellion? Yeah, I think it's, um, that's a good question. Like how, what is rebellion? Without using another word, that's like rebellion. Um, <laughs> for me, it's it's um, a sort of willingness to break the rules for the purpose of creating something completely different that will change like the world, our society, ourselves as we know it um, for the better. And so- mm-hmm. It's yeah, it's a it's it's a risk taking like and, and something must be like not always broken open, but sometimes I mean with rebellious root, we think about like people like plants growing in places they're not supposed to grow or blooming in places mm. they're not supposed to bloom. Uh, but they do, right? And they like mm. one of my favorite flowers is the bird a bird of paradise. And they're very like interesting, like you can't miss it when you see it. But like when they grow, and like people talk about like a rose who grow from concrete, but when when birds of paradise grow, their roots are so strong that they can break like anything that's on top of them. And so mm. I really think about that's the kind of rebelliousness that I try to harness when I'm doing work or when I'm living in general. Hmm. I love that. It's such a nice counterbalance to this language of disruption and that you hear in the tech startup world so much of the time where it's, you know, let's break things. And and there seems to be this idea that you're, you know, innovation means disrupting things just for the sake of, of breaking stuff and seeing what happens and trying to spin things out as quickly as possible. But it really feels like the way that you think about growth and the way that you think about building contributions in the world um, is more, I mean, as you say, community-based and responsive and really thoughtful in terms of the values that you bring to the work. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we should just be breaking. I Like every time I look at somebody's like pitch application or thesis, they always talk about like, we want rule breakers and we want people that like break stuff. And I'm like, sure. But like, I also, I, I operate from the place that I've you know, I, I don't break things without consequence. Like, I think that that yeah. kind of sort of, it's a very liberal notion to be like, oh, just break it and we'll see what happens. And I'm like, who is that afforded to? Like, who can just mm. break stuff and they'll be, and they'll be okay. And so like, I also operate under that understanding that, you know, folks break things all the time and then they, some people receive serious punishment and some people are celebrated for that. And so, um, yeah, I have, I, I think I move with the lens of that and like, and for what reason, like if it's not connected to a purpose or value and sometimes you don't need to break stuff. <laughs> sometimes you just, I mean, innovation isn't always breaking it. <laughs> sometimes it's just looking at it another way or turning it around or, you know, like fixing it a little bit. Like we don't need to break everything. <laughs> yeah. That's a really nice way to put it. So can you tell us a little bit more about the story of Kimberdiv and why you built it and how it's changed over time? Oh yeah, it's such a story. 
so Kimberdive, we, uh, so me and my best friend Kimberly, and so Kimberdive has our names in it, Kimberdive. Mm. And some people, like people have known us for years and they're like, one day when they see it, like they're like, ah! Get these weird messages on LinkedIn in the middle of the night, like, oh my God, it's you and his <laughs> name together. Like, wow. Yikes. Um, so we um we both were we worked together when we were we met in college. Um, we went to Syracuse University and we ran a like club essentially that was focused on uh, sex education for black and Latino students. Mm-hmm. And when we started running that club, we had no budget because it's not like something like the, we weren't putting on a concert. So they didn't give us any money. Uh, and so we had to learn how to, I think that's like where I got some of my entrepreneurship skills. Like when people were talking about be lean, I'm like, you ever ran a student group for 1400, <laughs> un- like for 14,000 undergraduates with $0? No. <laughs> um, so we figured out how to like create events and spaces and things like that with no money and no budget and no anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and we really, it was really important for us to do that work at that time when we entered college, HIV and AIDS was the, one of the leading causes of death for black women in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so our work was fun, but also urgent and necessary. And so we did everything and talk about breaking the rules. Like we invited um, test the, the New York uh, state testing center to campus to do um HIV testing but we didn't ask anybody we kind of just like rented the rooms and like and now looking back I'm like that probably like broke like 18 like rules of what you were supposed (laughs) to do but we were like we can get testing here we're just gonna bring them we're gonna bring them here and they're gonna do it on behalf of sex symbols um and so we started working together in that capacity and then we both graduated and went on to grad school and Kim was working on her MPH and I was working on I think the first part of my MSW and we really, um, we also had jobs. I was organizing. Um, I was community organizer for six years. Um, and Kim was also doing like health education or adolescent health education. And we were very unfulfilled in the ways that we were doing the work we were doing, specifically around having done this work in college. And we had added our own spin to it. And it just wasn't that way or playing that way in our paid work. Uh, and so we got together, we made one workshop um, we presented at a conference. We got invited to do it at another conference and we didn't have an organization. We were like, oh, I work here. And she was like, I work there. And we just do this workshop together. And they were like, why? <laughs> and like, we don't know. Um, so we decided to name ourselves. I was actually working in Guyana at the time. So I was in South America. We were on Gchat. She was in New York. Um, and we were like going back and forth and we landed on Kimberdiv mostly because everything that we had done up until that point had been collaborative. Um, like I didn't see work without her. She didn't see work without me. Um, our stories were meshed. Our individual stories were meshed in the work. Um, I was led to sex education from my own experience of being deprived sex education as a young person um, and having to sort of find out like what the consequences were in a very harsh way. And so we both were driven to that work and so we decided to give ourselves a name. And then after that, we became like a, a real thing, I guess, in the world. Uh, <laughs> we got ourselves a little, our first website was so interesting, but it was like, I mean, it was great for the time. And then looking back, I was like, look at us when we were just beginning, when we had 1000 words, too much copy on the website, you know, mm-hmm. um, very academic-y. Um, but we, we really like wanted to put forth sort of the sex education we did not have as young black girls growing up in Brooklyn, New York. And so mm-hmm. we were um, leading workshops around the city. We were doing, I mean, COVID had us pivot to 
virtual workshops, but really trying to get the sex education that we saw that was LGBTQ inclusive, that was um, had a racial justice analysis that had all of these pieces in it out there in the world. Um, but what's really hard is when you don't have the policy that matches the thing that you're trying to do. So mm-hmm. as long as the United States doesn't have a comprehensive sex education policy, or even here in New York State where I live doesn't have a comprehensive sex education policy, the work you're trying to do is like you piece it together and whoever wants it gets it, but it's not like a high demand situation. And since we were a business, it wasn't like we were pulling in like large grants and we were also competing with larger organizations like your Planned Parenthood Federation of America, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and we were also noticing at the same time that our peers, even though we wanted them to, you know, we wanted to grow another generation of folks that had the information about their bodies and their health, that our peers still didn't have that information. Yeah. Um, and so we started developing workshops for adult women and we started doing those workshops and those were really good. And then we hit mm-hmm. a space where, we were giving people lots of access to resources and information. And then the healthcare piece came in and it was like, so where do we go to the doctor? We were like, we don't know. <laughs> like, we don't huh. have that part. Right. Um, and so we've, we've, um, we started to look into sort of, there's this entire field of health tech or women's health tech or femtech um, that is meeting the needs of lots of folks. And I think about like great organizations, um, like uh, Maven and Tia Clinic and lots of folks that are doing that. Um, and at the same time, Black and Brown folks um, are still struggling to, um, like, uh, the. Uh, we haven't eliminated the health disparities that are really clear and, and huge in our own communities with, like, you know, a maternal death, a maternal mortality rate for Black women, that's three to four times that of white women in the U.S., right? And so wow. uh, we... And that's just like one, there's like every single mm-hmm. like reproductive health or sexual health issue, um, black women fare worse um, on every single um, issue that exists. And so we are like thinking about how do we build in a space that is definitely addressing a need in one way and missing an entire population in another, especially as um, many of nonprofits focused on black women and girls are actively pushing against regressive policies. So much of the money is going into addressing the necessary structural changes on the policy level. And that's where my life was because I'm an organizer. Mm-hmm. But now I'm like, well, in the meantime, how do I build a product or build something that helps that? And if it put, if it forces, sometimes tech does push policy. We see that happen all the time. Like mm-hmm. you know, certain policies jump out of nowhere because tech does it has to. Um, and so how do we sort of build and this is all experimentation I don't know what the solution is just yet but like mm-hmm. how do we build in that market um given and they're not and you know there's not there's there are folks building in it right now but there's not it's not like a flooded sort of group of everyone's at the table because people are trying different ways a lot of them being policy and legislative and I've done that work it was very cool I'm doing something different now yeah. um, and I'm and I'm interested in innovating in a different way because um if June tells you anything about like what the policy landscape is mm-hmm. um, for reproductive health and rights in this country, then, you know, there's something else that we have to try. And so that's, that's sort of an evolution. And so Kimberative is in this space where we're thinking about um, how do we put sort of a product or tool on the market that folks can use to really be autonomous um, and supported in their sexual reproductive health. Um, Black women specifically feel seen, heard and celebrated when it mm-hmm. comes to their sexual reproductive health care. Hmm. 
So what advice do you have for businesses that want to want to build in more humanity? What's where do you think they should start? Um, where should they start? The job description. Mm. Um, I think when we um, so like my rule, I don't, I don't share job descriptions that don't have salaries um, at all. I don't, or I'll follow up if someone's like, hey, share a job, I'll follow up and be like, what's the salary if it's not listed? And they're like, I don't know. I'm like, okay, well, when you send the salary, like, share it. Um, I think we're in a space where um, we've seen what it looks like for folks to be unemployed at huge levels, for folks to, for, um, you know, working parents and moms to leave the workforce, um, for folks to work in the wage economy, I mean, in the gig economy, in the wage economy, um and how that like changes and shifts how people are able to make a livelihood and sustain their families and so um the job description feels like a good entry point for me that that tells me exactly who you are about your values without ever having to list them uh and so like i look at how people talk about time off i look at how people talk about their benefits how they talk about healthcare knowing that healthcare expenses put a lot of families close to poverty or in poverty um, and even if you have a high paying salary, but no health care, then you're not really doing anything. If you have paid family leave, any of those things, like I think how you are. And again, like I'm not at a place to hire yet, um, but that's something I'm always thinking about when I'm ready to do it. And like, you know, even for, you know, contractors, I think a lot about that. Um, they don't get benefits or things like that, but like, how do we do this in a way that feels fair and just? And so I think that yeah, it starts in the job description, so you can list your values and be all bubbly and shit, but, like, if you don't, <laughs> your values don't translate to your actual, like, company's sort of structure, and time off is a really big thing if you don't think that folks can, you know, be productive and, you know, take two, three, four weeks of vacation or something like that, then I think there's a chance to t- check in with your um, values around productivity um, and, and things like that. Um, I think onboarding, <laughs> um, how you welcome folks into your organization and how much time you take to plan for people to come. I don't think you would ever have a dinner party and then just like be in the backyard and be like, let yourself in all the way from the backyard. And then like have people <laughs> stroll in and be like, water will be here in an hour, but you could take a seat. Like you wouldn't do that. So yeah. why would you do that for your staff? Um, you should never onboard folks like that. No one wants to come into an organization and feel like you didn't want them there to begin mm-hmm. with and so um I think that that kind of like warm sort of landing for folks um I, I'm a little like you know people are like oh we're all family I just think that's kind of weird sometimes because it's like we're actually not we're all different and we're we're um we're very different but I do think creating sort of equity and parity from the very start like you know I don't salary negotiation I don't really believe in some of us have to negotiate our livelihood every single day like our right to exist on this planet me as a black woman I have to do that every single day I don't ever want to go to a job where they're like you should have negotiated I'm like I negotiate to be here so (laughs) I don't want to ever think about that if you just say what the salary is and make it fair and livable and of the job experience and you say that across the board for your team then I don't think that we should have to have those conversations um and I think that companies um yeah, when they're explicit by their values, not just like list them, but talk about uh, go in and operationalize how you live them. Like, what is a thing that you do to live them? I know once when we were ver- when I was first starting out at the Home Girl Box, and we were making um, tote bags um, for one of our. We were celebrating the life and legacy of Black feminist 
uh, lesbian poet Audre Lorde. And it was the first tote bag we had ever made. And um, I was very like, oh, this is cool. So we had the designer and we got the graphics and we got all this stuff and it was time to produce the tote bag. And we were just starting. We had no money, Erica. We had, we were so broke. Um, <laughs> we didn't have like money that we have now in the bank. Um, but we really um, wanted to create this tote bag. Anyway, we were looking at vendors and it was strange because like some of them were like 10 cent to create them or whatever. And our um, supplier called back and was like, well, do you want it to like be produced like with prison labor or should we go like this kind of labor? And I was like, <laughs> prison labor? Prison <laughs> labor? Well, if we ethically produce them, I'm like, leave with that. Um, cost like, you know, $6 a tote or something like that. And I was like, wow, that's a lot of money. And I was like, oh, well, maybe I've always just had a, a tote bag produced in a prison that I didn't know about. Um, of course, like, that's why I could get this high value. But it was a question around, like, so you say, like, we, we donate to bail funds and we do this other stuff. And when it came down to the production of our tote bag, like, what are we going to do? And obviously, we um, we had to, like, fix the budget. We had to let go of some stuff. We had to, our dream sort of box didn't, couldn't be that, you know, mm -hmm. thing if we wanted this tote bag. But that was us living into our values, which, of course, meant we had to make sacrifices. But also, we couldn't be, like, you know... Uh, no prisons except pr prisons aren't feminist and then like have tote bag produced in a prison so those were like you know I think actually talking about how you operate operationalize the the values that you list because that feels like a thing that everybody wants to do or does like here are our values how do you live them how are you showing your team um I think um, like, I'm like I'm really into this question because I love it but like, <laughs> I think I think also like a lot of organizations externally show how they live their values and everyone is like oh yes toms you get one shoe and you send one to africa or whatever but like that's how you externally live your values how do you live your values inside because that matters for your team and i work with lots of teams that do really good work and the world loves them and they really hate where they work because mm -hmm. the values that they offer and the things that they offer to the people their clients is great on the outside on the inside it's like a hellfire like you know they like it, it just doesn't it doesn't make sense um and so yeah that's what I would offer for companies and and I think that that's the hardest work um to do the internal stuff and if you're like me and your aim was not to build a company and like not have people work there then it feels like oh I didn't I didn't plan for that I just wanted to work on my idea but also, like, that's what the world is asking of you. So kind of got to do it. Mm -hmm. What is the problem that you're in love with? If you had to pick one. Uh, what is the problem that I'm in love with? Yeah, I have so many problems. I mean, my work is really in um, interrupting health inequity. And, like, that's that's the, like, you know, why are there different health outcomes for different folks and how do we go about changing that? Um, and, and also like bringing it to the, like not normalizing deep health inequity. Cause I think that there's like a normalization of that. And like that stems from like my life. Um, both of my parents uh, died when they were very young. They were both 30 years old um, of chronic health conditions 
that I believe today someone would have questioned their mm. care, their treatment, their diagnosis. Um, and it was almost unquestioned. Like no one in my family talks about it. It was like, oh, well, you know, cancer was different back then. I was like, yeah, but not that different. Some people live beyond 30. Um, and I do think, you know, facets of their class, the fact that they were black, they were young, um, they had a, you know, my mom was not, I was one years old when she died. She had a one year old child. I felt like there, there needed to be more questioning around that. Like this was an injustice that deserved to be like, and this happens every single day to people that deserves to be like on the front page of the newspaper, on the TV screen. Like, why is this happening? You know, but I think that she's probably in somebody's like, you know, maternity mortality review board, you know, report after, you know, she, she died within the context of what was considered a maternal mortality sort of death at this point, even though it wasn't directly related to her giving birth. Um, and her name just like sort of probably sits there, right, 30 years ago. Um, and so I feel very unsettled by that. And I think that that's a question and we need to be like actively um, asking questions around preventable death. Um, and, and not just like the science side of it or the biomedical side of it, but sort of the social conditions and cultural conditions that lead to those things um, and that make it normalized and uh like an everyday happenstance sort of situation um mm. and so that that's sort of what my work i think instigates like this is non-normal um mm -hmm. that there there's like an historical sort of arc that has this happen to certain people in certain places in certain ways and we need to do something to disrupt that and change that um because they're it will only continue to replay and like the, the future literally will continue to be shaped by that if we don't ask those questions. Hmm. That's really well put. And I'm sorry for your loss, Brittany. Oh, thank you. So is there anything we can do to support your work? Um, anything you can do to support my work? I mean, I would love for people to just, you know, check it out uh, in all of its places. Um, and I can list all of those, but hey, well, we'll include We'll include them Great. all in the show notes. Yep. I love it. Yeah. They'll be there. It's a yep. long list. Um, <laughs> yeah. People just to check out um, things. You can buy things at the Homegirl Box or Homegirl HQ. Um, Kim Bridip has a cool newsletter and Rebellious Root. Stay tuned for updates on or reach out to us for, your, you know, like if you have a youth worker thing that you want to do, we're here for that. That's great. Thank you, Brittany. This was really a pleasure. Um, just so lovely to have you. Thank you. I really enjoyed being here. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Hikma Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Erica Makalak, founder of Hikma. The production of this episode was led by Sofia Van Hees in collaboration with Smangele Madena, Eufemia Valdesare, Ai Mazuda, Nicole Markland, and Deshara Green. Matthew Tomkinson composed the original music you hear now in his capacity as the 2022 Hikma Artist in Residence. This podcast has been made possible with generous support from Innovate BC, Tech Nation, the Information and Communications Technology Council, the Canada Digital Adoption Program, and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. You can find show notes, links, and transcripts at www.hikma.studio/podcast. Hikma is situated on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Hunkamedam-speaking Musqueam people. We are grateful to be here and to share this space with you. 
Our speakers, team members, and listeners are based all over the world. And wherever you're listening, we encourage you to learn more about whose land you're on.